0: Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Good morning. You can go ahead and open up your books, your Bible, sorry, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we are in the middle of a study, we're calling it a cooperative study uh, between the Phoenix City Church of Christ and the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ. Basically, because, well you know, the preachers of those two churches are kind of like best friends and so we were at coffee one day and we thought, you know what we should do? We should do a sermon series together. And then we thought, okay, when are we going to do it? And then Tony said, how about this Sunday? And y'all know me, right? I went, but uh, no, that won't work. Um, I have October open. And he said, okay, that works too. So we're studying the topic of different. Last week we talked about the fact that every single individual thinks differently differently. But that does not mean that we come to different conclusions. I don't know, um, it was it was 10 years ago, and I have this strange memory where if you and I have a conversation, I can remember word for word what you say. I just don't remember when you said it. I, I Becca gets on to me all the time because we will, we will have a conversation, and um, I will not think about that conversation for a long time. And then... Six months later, I can say, remember that time you said this? And I'll quote the sentence back to her. And I'll say, what, whatever happened to that? And she goes, that was like six months ago, and you're just now thinking of that? Sorry, I, I don't know. But it was like 10 years ago or so that we went and saw, I think I think it was our first date. She disagrees and thinks it's like our third or fourth date. I don't remember when it was. But we went and saw a movie. I don't even remember the name of the movie. But it's a movie about gerbils and hamsters, and they're like spy agents. Do you all know what movie I'm talking about? I have no idea what movie I'm talking about. It's a Disney movie. Yeah, G-Force. There we go. So, G-Force. It's guinea pigs. That's what it was. Guinea pigs. All right. We went and saw this movie, but we made the decision that we were going to go see it in 3D because I was highfalutin' and I was trying to impress a girl. Keep in mind that most of y'all know the first few dates I had I had to ask her to eat at home because I didn't have enough money to pay for dinner and a movie. So, um, But I was highfalutin and thought we would go see a 3D movie. It was my first 3D movie. Y'all ever tried to watch a 3D movie without the glasses on? It's kind of impossible. See, what happens is they take two images and they overlay them just differently enough, just, just far apart enough to where your regular eyes can't see it, but when you put on the glasses, it makes your eyes focus in and you can see it 3D. That's kind of like this idea that every person comes to a different conclusion about God, a different conclusion about the Bible, a different conclusion about religion in general, and yet we're all together. The, the problem is that the world takes religion. Just a few months ago, I was at Polishing the Pulpit, and I heard some lessons by an amazing brother who I cannot pronounce his name. And if I did pronounce his name, I would probably offend him. Uh, He grew up in Iraq as a follower of Islam. And he went through and showed the, the, the fact, the undeniable fact, that the people that you read about in the New Testament who are usually called Judaizers. Have y'all ever heard that word before? Judaizers, a person who is a Christian in the New Testament, but they keep trying to get the people to go back to the Old Testament way. Like, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, he says that we should leave the elementary principles of the the knowledge of Christ and that we should go on to perfection, leaving the foundation of uh, remission of sins and baptism and so forth. Because these people were trying to say that, we should take the Old Testament. And they were, the, the problem was the Hebrew Christians were having to spend so much time on the elementary principles of the faith that they couldn't go on to learn anything else because they kept having to talk about baptism. It's like, the, it's like the preacher who preached on baptism over and over and over and over again. And finally, the elders said, listen, you're going to have to preach on something else. And he said, what would you like me to preach on? And they said, why don't you just preach on the flood? And he said, okay. And so he started his sermon, In Genesis chapter 6, people had given themselves over to idolatry, every thought of man had become evil continually, and so God saved them by water, which brings me to my first point, water baptism. It's that they just kept talking about the fundamental principles of Christianity to the point that they couldn't go on because they kept having these people trying to tell them that you need to circumcise your children on the eighth day, just like the Jews did. You need to follow the Jewish law and the Christian law. And what this brother at PTP did was he went and showed that those people, the people that were saying you should follow the Old Testament and the New Testament, those are the people that 600 years later, a man didn't make a new religion. He just gave it a name. He took the Judaizing teachers' principles and thoughts that they had been living with for 600 years in his society and gave it a name called Islam. It means submission to God. You see, the world has all these different religions that are just different enough that you can't focus on the truth. It's just like watching a 3D movie without glasses. It's just just different enough that it causes problems. I mean, you think about just... Um, in general, Christianity in general. You know, the the people that claim to be followers of the New Testament, and followers of Jesus Christ. If you go to X group, and then you go to X group down the street, they seem similar. In fact, one time I was preaching in a small town, and uh, I met one of the youth ministers in the area. You all know I, I like to meet the other people who are proclaiming, uh, doctrines on Sundays, and so I went and I met him, and I asked him, you know, how'd you get into this line of work? You know, all that. The preacher questions, how'd you get into this? What you're running? Y'all you know what what you're you running means? That's preacher language for how many people are in the pews on Sunday mornings? We, we just say, what you're running? And then we all know what we're talking about. So we were having this conversation, and I said, where'd you, you know, where'd you come from? And he said, well, I actually came from the group across the street, a completely different religious group but he's working for both, he's, he worked for one and then he went across the street because he could make some more money at the other one they're just different enough that you can't focus in acts chapter 17 the same thing is happening the difference is that in today's world the majority of those groups that are just different enough all claim to be following jesus christ Paul's day in Acts chapter 17, they didn't all claim to be following Jesus Christ. But they were all similar. Close enough that, that a person could think that I can follow all of these. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is called to the Areopagus, which just means, uh, don't, don't get distracted by the big words, okay? Areopagus, are you ready for this? It means a large, flat, Hill. There you go. Areopagus. He is called to the Areopagus, which is in the center of town. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I, as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, they, they're all just different enough that we should probably make an altar to all of them. what happens if we miss one we don't want one God to feel left out so we'll we'll leave one open to interpretation that way if we have missed one or if there's one that's not represented in our city and someone comes from you know someone comes from another city to visit Athens and they come to the Areopagus because they think that that's where their God is going to be and Maybe we don't know about that God yet, so we're going to make one to the unknown God. And so he says, this is the one that I'm proclaiming to you, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. You know, not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Areopagate, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So Paul gets to the Areopagus in Athens, and the text says that his, his spirit is stirred within him. He has to say something. And so what he says is, is twofold. Number one, he talks about the difference between our God, the Lord, the God of the Bible and the gods of mankind. We'll get to that in just a second. And then number two, he talks about what that means for us. What, what, is, what should we do based on the fact, how should we live based on the fact that God is different? Number one, he says that God is different. Verses uh, uh, 22 through 25. And in there, he says one thing that really, it gets hmm, gets right to the heart of the matter. You see, it's not, it's not a good idea to treat symptoms. First off, here's a symptom. It's hot up here, okay? All right, so, it's not a good idea to treat the symptoms. You should always fix the problem, right? Um, so, he gets right to the heart of the matter. You have all these gods. You have all these religions. You have all this, all this religious artifacts. I, I perceive that you're very religious, is what he tells them. Then he says, but you're trying to worship God with your hands. You're trying to worship God with what you can do. Now, most of you know, if you're, if you're, if you're familiar with Warm Springs Road or you're, you're a member here, you know that... Um, well, I think I talked about it a week or two ago. See, there you go again. I, I know that I said it, I don't know when I said it. But I have over the years accumulated a set of skills. Does that sound like a movie to y'all? All right. I have accumulated a set of skills that, that would be able to make a lot of money. I think the number is somewhere around fourteen now that I can that, that with with any level of competency. Instruments that I can play. You want to know the one thing that struck me when I, was, when I was studying the truth and I was studying the New Testament and I was coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ? You know what struck me? I grew up playing those instruments in worship services. I can still go up to my office now and pick up my trumpet and I can play any one of hundreds of, of worship songs by memory. One day, I remember the, the day that it happened. I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, the problem is that I've, I'm trying to worship Him because I'm good at something. I'm trying to use something that I'm good at. I'm trying to use my hands, my, my physical ability to worship Him. You know, that's the same thing that happens in religious groups all over the world today. Our God is not a God that is worshipped by the hands of men. That's the first thing He mentions. But not only that, just think about all the different ways that they would have worshipped. Some illicit, and some not so illicit. I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking a drink and pouring it out on the ground in front of a wooden statue. It's relatively pointless, but there's nothing wrong in it, inherently. Think of all the ways they would have worshipped those religions. All of them had to do with, with Enacting something that they did because they were good at it, or because it was a physical thing—it was their religion was purely physical. And what God, what Paul says is that God, the God of the Bible, the God that he followed, is not a God that's worshipped like that. It's, its not a God. He's not a God that—that that is relieved when we give him something that we're good at. Well, God should love this because I, I'm using my talents for his glory. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with saying that. I think, you all may differ. I mean, you all have to listen to me all the time. I think that I am uniquely qualified, maybe not, maybe not qualified. Okay, that's, that's a stretch. Um, I don't get scared in front of you all. There can be a thousand people in this room. Well, there can't because the fire marshal would have a problem with it. But there could be a thousand people standing there and I'm not going to worry about it at all. I can, you know, y'all always laugh. I look at every one of your eyes and you all think that I'm paying attention to what you're, I have no idea what you're doing. Somebody walks up. I'm sorry that the baby was crying. I didn't even notice. There's nothing wrong with using your talents to glorify God. We should do that. But when we use our talents and expect God to be glorified. There's a difference. Now, in the rest of the chapter, he mentions uh, basically how this should change our life. How we should be different because of this. Look at verse number 26. And he, being God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of of their dwelling place. The word made there, it, it, it means crafted, but it also means to lighten the ship. Like in, in the book of Acts, when the ship is going down in the storm, and Paul says, Don't worry, we're going to be okay, but we need to do a couple things. So, what they do is they have a big meal, they eat all the food that they can, and what's left over that they don't need, they throw it overboard. The throwing overboard is the same word for make. God made us. Sometimes, the Bible says that sometimes in order for God to finish the work in us, which we talked about last week and which we'll talk about again here in just a minute, sometimes it means taking something away. Now, God never, God never, never deliberately tempts man with sin. Ever. Book of James says that he is not tempted, nor does he tempt. God is not trying to get you to sin. However, God will lighten your load so that you don't pay so you don't pay attention to something else, so that you can pay attention to Him. Well, I was doing pretty good, but then uh, my my truck broke down, and I, uh, you know, I got I got to go to work, and I gotta i got to do all this. i I got I to figure out a way to do this. i got to figure out a way to make this work. You know, all those statements that we use. Sometimes God takes away in order for us to pay attention more to the things that He wants us to pay attention to. That's the word made. God made every person. He made us. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 1, See, I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build... To plant. Why did God tell Jeremiah in the Old Testament that he was giving him a, a position, the, the prophet, as, as a prophet, to tear down and then to build up? Because at the time, the nation of Israel had come to the point in their history where what they needed most was a little tearing down so that they could focus on what was true. A few hundred years later, during the intertestament period, the same thing happens. The the religious abilities of the Jews are destroyed because of Greco-Roman influence. In the New Testament, the same thing happens. The the church is put underground because God needs them to focus. and, And and then in a couple hundred years after that, they are allowed to grow and to multiply. And You know, the worst thing for the church overall is for there to be no persecution. The single worst thing that could ever happen to the church is that there is no sense of persecution in the world. Because what we do then is we become complacent. We become apathetic. And we end up with a religion that is much like our westernized Christianity today. It means nothing to us. Half of the people that claim Christianity, it means absolutely nothing to them except maybe, maybe something that they can use to further themselves. It, ha- it, it has no bearing on what they do or who they are or anything. Now... He says that He did this. He made them. Verse 27, that they should seek God. Now, I want you to pay attention to this imagery, okay? He made us. He created us. God has a plan for your life. The plan that God has for your life is that you will obey Him. That's it. He doesn't care about Ferraris. He doesn't care about that nice job. He doesn't care about all those things. His only goal is to make it to where it is easier for you to follow Him, okay? He made us. That, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The picture there is of a person who's reaching out in the dark and can't see anything. Now here's, here's my question. Whenever I'm reading a new, uh, a new section of scripture in order to get ready to preach it, what I do is I, I read it. I try to forget everything I've ever studied about that passage before. And then I, I sit down and I ask questions about it. This is a question that came to me when we were preparing for this. Why does Paul use the imagery of a man reaching out in the dark to find something that he can't see when at the same time Matthew chapter 5 says that the church is like a light on a hill? like a city on a hill, like a light that is in the middle of a room that gives light to everyone. And we've all heard the, exp- the expressions, we've all seen these sermon illustrations where the preacher or the youth minister turns out the light and lights a lighter. Y'all ever seen that before? Shake your head like this. It's pretty hard not to see the lighter, right? Why does Paul use this image... When over and over again in the New Testament, the church and Christianity and God Himself is mentioned as being light. John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as He is in the light. Jesus calls Himself the light of the world. Why does He use this imagery? And I think I, th- I, think I might have figured it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He's talking to people who have had their eyes closed because of all their different ways of thinking. Well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way I grew up. This is the way my mom and my dad taught me. This is the way that my grandparents believed. This is, you know, Paul, my grandfather was a priest in in the temple of Diana. This is the way I've always been. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Why does Paul use the image of a person reaching out in the dark to these people on the Areopagus in Athens with all these different religious gods around them. Yeah, it's pretty easy to see light and darkness when you have your eyes opened. But their eyes are closed. They, they think they're looking, but the, but the God of this world has blinded their eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4. Then he goes on to quote two different secular philosophers of the day, that they should seek God, verse 27, perhaps find their way to Him and uh, feel their way to Him and find Him. And He's actually not far from each one of us for, here are the quotes, in Him we live and move and have our being, quote by a Greek philosopher of the day, As, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Okay, number one, why does Paul use that imagery? We figured that out. Number two, why does Paul, who is inspired of the Holy Spirit, who is going to write the majority of the New Testament books, who is going to to found the majority of the New Testament churches during the first century, who is going to go on at least three missionary journeys, four if you count his accidental slash purposeful trip to Rome, why does he, with all this religious knowledge that he has gained from all the years of studying under the feet of Gamaliel and under the Jewish law and all these years spent in the wilderness after his baptism, learning from Jesus Christ Himself and being inspired by the Holy Spirit and he preaches all these sermons that are one-off that no one has ever heard anything like it before in their lives, why does he quote two Secular people that aren't inspired and aren't even saved. The reason why he used the picture is because their eyes are blinded. The reason why he quotes those people is because those are the people that they listen to. And the fact is that truth is truth regardless of where it comes from. Every person thinks differently. But if we focus on truth, if we seek out truth, we will come to the same conclusion. And that same conclusion is what he quotes in Acts chapter 17. See, Epimenides and, and the other poet that he quotes here, they're not saved. They're, they're not members of the body of Christ. But they focused on truth long enough that they came to this. In him, we live and move and have our being. Now, here's the, here's the next question that came to mind. Um, how terrifying is it if people who aren't, aren't looking for the end result in the right place come to the right conclusion, but people who are looking for the right result never see it because they're too apathetic? Because they're just not paying attention. How, how terrifying... Have y'all ever met the people... Uh, I'm thinking of one person in particular in my life who I wish, I wish that he would take his Bible long enough and sit down by himself long enough and get rid of everything that he's ever thought. I guarantee you he'd come to the truth. But the problem is he's not going to, I don't think. Hopefully he will. But He's still more focused than most of us. And we're supposed to be looking in the right place. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. The Greeks understood it. And he's trying to get these people on the Areopagus to understand it. And Paul understands it. That his entire life belongs to Jesus Christ. That his entire being belongs to Jesus Christ. Regardless of what he wants or what he does or anything like that. Verse number 29. Here's where where the rubber meets the road. Are you ready? Then being God's offspring, you ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness or with righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. See, the fact is that this new God that He's telling them is going to require change on their part. If we're going to seek Him, we're going to have to change ourselves. I I don't have these sparks of genius very often. You know, I wish, I wish that I was one of these tweetable preachers. You know what a tweetable preacher is? A tweetable preacher is the one that spits out all these one-liners and they're just, man, that's, that'll convict you. I I don't have that ability. But I came up with one. Are you ready? Some of y'all probably saw it. I can't, I can't help, I can't hold it in. When I come up with something that good, it may not even be that good. I may be joking myself. When I come up with something that I think is that good, I can't, I can't wait till Sunday. I have to put it out. If while seeking for God, we require no change, then what we have sought for is not God, but us. Isn't that good? That's amazing. All right. I surprise myself sometimes. Anyways, it's true. The people on the Areopagus need change. If they're going to seek God, they're going to have to change something. Not only their religions, okay? We understand that. In order to seek the true God, they're going to have to leave all the ridiculous idols behind. They know it, and we know it, and Paul knows it. That's understood. I think sometimes we water down the gospel because we try to get people, you know, to not realize that they need to change until the very last minute. You know, let's just study the Bible. Let's just study the Bible. Would you like to study the Bible with me? And then we sit there for 14, 15 weeks studying the Bible. And it's not until the 16th week that we talk to anything about, hey, listen, what you've been doing, what you've thought is is, is not correct. Paul doesn't do that. They understand that they're going to have to change if they're going to follow this Jesus that, that Paul's speaking of. But here's the catch. He uses some language here that is interesting. Verse 29, "...being then God's offspring..." We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. At times, times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day, He has made a day, on which He will judge the world with righteousness, not in righteousness, but with righteousness righteousness. Matthew 6 and verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He's going to judge us, John 8, 12, by the things that he has said. He's going to judge us with righteousness. He's going to have the book that talks about how to be righteous sitting there. And he's going to say, okay, here's this book and here's the book of your life. And do these things match? And if they don't, then it's not his fault. It's our fault. He's given it to us. It's our fault if they don't match. He's he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge judge the world with righteousness by a man whom he has Now get this. He has Haridzo. That's a Greek word. Haridzo. Haridzo. He is appointed. It sounds like horizon, doesn't it? He has set the limit. You know, the, the horizon is the limit of the earth. It's where the earth curves over. Regardless of what people on YouTube tell you, that's where the earth curves over because the earth is a ball, not flat. All right, anyways. So, the horizon. He has horizoned Jesus Christ to be the one. Verse 31. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness or with righteousness by men whom he has horizoned, appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He has given the boundaries of the of what Jesus Christ is meant for, the reason for his coming to earth. Now, back up to verse number twenty-six, because he uses the same word again. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having haridzoed, having appointed, determined, allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. The same way God made us and appointed us for one purpose, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, to fear Him and to keep His commandments. For that's the whole duty of man, the whole reason of man existing is to take care of this one job, to fear Him and to keep His commandments. The same way He did that, He gave Jesus Christ one job. When Jesus Christ, part of the Godhead, came to earth to live among men, He had one job. The forming of the church is is an afterproduct of that one job. The the feeding the 5,000 is an afterproduct of that one job. The the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount is an afterproduct of that one job. His one job was this. Die on the cross. His only job. He has appointed, He has horizoned a person. He made us with our one job. He made Jesus Christ with His one job. Jesus has finished His job. So now it becomes a question of whether or not we're going to finish ours. That's the overall picture in the book of Acts. It's not, you know, we really wish that you would come to church with us this Sunday because because I know that you're really religious and you love this and, and, and you've grown up like this. Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ came with one job to die on the cross. And He did it. And God set you with one job. He gave you a horizon. And He appointed you so that your whole job is to seek after Him. And people listen, you've been seeking after Him pretty well. You've been, you've been searching The problem is, 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded your eyes and you haven't been looking clearly enough. You've been reaching out in the dark and you haven't found him. What you found is something similar, but it's just different enough that it's not going to do its job. It seems like what I'm preaching and what your priests have been preaching for thousands of years are similar, but they're just different enough that it's not going to do their job. It's not going to do its job. Then, finally, verse 31. Now, he, he made us, he, he horizoned us with this one job of feeling our way toward him, to seeking him, which means that we're going to have to change. But look at verse 31 again. He did this, he appointed, and of this he has given assurance. The word for assurance is the Greek word pistis, which means faith. He has given faith. He's given faith. Not enough to save you. Ephesians chapter 2, faith is the only thing that saves you. It's true. Problem is, faith without works is dead, James says. It's not enough faith to, to save you. It's enough faith to know that you need something. The philosophers call it, the, well, one philosopher calls it, Man has made, has been made with a God-shaped hole in us. Every person, when we are honest with ourselves, has some faith in the supernatural. Even the atheist who says that it's completely natural has to say that natural works supernaturally at times. Every person across the history of mankind has been made... To look for the supernatural. And what Paul is saying is, Athenians, you have been made this way. You have been searching. God has given you enough faith to know that you need something. Problem is, you've been blinded and you need to open your eyes. And I think that's pretty true for us in the 21st century as well. That a lot of people, even members of the body of Christ need to open their eyes and realize that what you're doing is just different enough that it's not going to do its job. I'll leave you with this. I'm out of time, I know, but I'll leave you with this. Uh, as similar to the, to the vein that Paul quotes the uh, philosophers in Acts chapter 17, I'm going to quote a very famous preacher from the 17 and 1800s who is not a member of the church, but when we seek after and we find the truth, it doesn't matter who finds it. Truth is truth, regardless of where it comes from. So here's this very long quote that I'm going to read to you. Are you ready? How How profane is indifference? To be indifferent to God when God is near in the glory and in His majesty and the riches of His love is a sign of great hardness of heart. God is near, supplying you with breath, keeping you in life, and yet you care not. Holy men have trembled with awe in His presence, and you have trifled. How is this? If He had gone on a journey, and you had forgotten Him, there might be some little excuse, but with the Lord close to you, how can you ignore Him? Can I call this less than sheer profanity? If an angel in the presence of the Most High refused to adore, if a spirit before His burning throne maintained a sullen silence, We should count it unmistakable sedition. What is it in your case? What shall I say to those who, here, in the presence of God, have lived 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years, and yet have never given their Lord a serious thought? Do you slightly esteem your Master? Is He not worth your thought? Will you neither bow your knee in homage, or lift your voice in thankfulness, O men and women? Why do you act so unjustly, so ungratefully? What has God done that you should slight him? How can you excuse yourselves if you live and move in him and you have no more care for him than if there were no such being? A very famous magician, when talking about evangelism, said much the similar statement. He said, how much do you have to hate someone to know that there is a God and know that there is a heaven and not tell them anything about it? I wonder if a lot of people in religion today are reaching but their eyes are closed and they're never going to find it. What they're going to find is something just different enough that it will suffice in their minds And they'll stop looking. Don't let that be you. If you need to obey the gospel this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. If you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, or you need to come forward and ask for forgiveness in a public manner for a public sin, or maybe you just need prayers of encouragement in a public manner, then please let us know while we do that.